have a seat. <clears throat> My name is Norton, and um, I'm one of the pastors here at New Denver. And uh, today we're going to begin um, what will be one of the most interesting and hopefully one of the most fun sermon series uh, we've ever done because we're going to spend the next 13 weeks deep in the book of Leviticus. Um, and it's going to be super challenging for me, and it's going to be super challenging for you. In fact, some of you have already said, why in the world are we doing this, right? Why are we doing this series? Because if you've been around church for very long or you've ever read the Bible, you know the Bible isn't just one book. It's 66 different books. And uh, if you try to read through the Bible, it's easy and fun to get through books one and two. But then you get to the third book, which is Leviticus, and almost all of us hit the Levitical wall at that point, right? It's like hitting uh, a brick wall um, for a bunch of reasons. Uh, number one, because Leviticus is full of rules and regulations and rituals, and they're just tedious and they're repetitive and they can get really uh, boring to read. And so reading through Leviticus starts to feel a bit like a slog. Um, but number two, some of the rituals that are described in Leviticus um, are primitive, uh, they're barbaric, right? They're just, uh, there's animal sacrifice that is described in all of its gruesome and gory uh, detail. And not only is that hard to read, but you read it and you just think, this has nothing to do with my life. This has nothing to do with our world. This has nothing to do with my faith or the way that I follow Jesus. And, and that just makes it really tough. Um, but here's, I, I think, the biggest challenge of Leviticus, a bunch of the rules and regulations, you get to them and they just seem pointless. I mean, there's just times where things seem random, right? And totally arbitrary and it doesn't make any sense. And it raises all sorts of questions about God and about the Bible. And it's almost as if every difficult question, as Stephen mentioned before, every difficult question and every challenging thing about God and about the Bible are all concentrated in the book of Leviticus. It's like they're, they're pushed to their extreme and they're pushed to their edge there, um, which is why so many of us have tried to read through the Bible and we get to Leviticus and we throw up our hands and we just say, you know, you lost me at Leviticus. Like that's just where the Bible loses us. And in fact, maybe for some of you, Leviticus is partly why you gave up even trying to read the Bible. Maybe Leviticus is partly why you stopped going to church a long time ago. Or maybe Leviticus is one of the reasons why you're just not even sure what you believe about God anymore. And it's for that reason that I think we need to read this book. I don't think we can ignore it. Um, I, I don't think we can just pick and choose which parts of the Bible we want to read and which parts of the Bible we're going to allow to inform our faith and which parts of the Bible we're going to throw out and we're going to ignore. And so for the next 13 weeks, we are going to read through this book together, partly because I don't think we can ignore it, but partly because I hope to show you that as seemingly irrelevant as this book seems, it actually couldn't be more relevant to our lives and to our world right now. Because you see, Leviticus is not just about rules and regulations and rituals. It's also a book about social justice in society. Do you think that's an issue we could use some wisdom and insight on right now? Uh, Leviticus is about how to manage your time well, 
how, how to manage your schedule, how to manage your, your calendars well. Do you think that's important for anybody listening right now? Leviticus is about the pervasive human experience of guilt and shame and how to live a life free of guilt and shame. Is there anyone who would like to live a life like that? Leviticus is about resolving conflict with others. It's about economics. It's about the environment. It's about human sexuality. It's about family relationships. It's about leadership. Are any of those things relevant in our world right now? Leviticus is also about how the God that we worship is often different than what we assume about him. We assume that he's an angry God. Did you know that the Hebrew word for anger doesn't show up once in the entire book of Leviticus? And what we're gonna see is he's actually a God of grace and compassion and mercy and justice and that he's on your side and he's on my side and he has a bigger vision for your lives and for our world than even we have for ourselves. In fact, Leviticus was so important to the earliest followers of Jesus that John and Paul and Peter and the writer of Hebrews all discuss or reference the book of Leviticus. There's references all throughout the New Testament to it. In fact, Jesus would often reference it. In fact, one of the most famous things that Jesus said, probably the most famous, that people who don't even go to church, who don't even follow Jesus would say, yeah, yeah, he was right on there. That's something that we should all do and we should all live by. It wasn't original to Jesus. He was just quoting the book of Leviticus. And so for the next 13 weeks, I want to take you on a journey. It's a journey that I've been on personally for the last two or three years. We're going to take a journey through the book of Leviticus. And today we're going to kick it off by literally just reading one verse. We're only going to read one verse today. We're going to look at some background. I'm going to share with you a few important ideas. And then I'll wrap up by giving you some tips for how to move forward and navigate this difficult book. So let's jump in. Here's how Leviticus starts. Chapter 1, verse 1 says this. The Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting. And there's a couple of interesting things in this opening sentence because right off the bat, we're not really sure what's going on. Uh, why did God call Moses? How did God, did he call him on the phone? Like what, did God need something? Um, why is God calling Moses? Is there something wrong? Uh, what's going on? What's the tent of meeting? When is this happening? Where is this happening? And honestly, it feels like we're jumping into a story halfway through. Well, like we're jumping into the middle of a paragraph or the middle of a story or we're jumping into part two of something and there was a part one, but we missed part one. It's like watching The Empire Strikes Back first, right? Or The Two Towers or Avengers Infinity War. Like it's like watching one of those first and the story's already going. Something has already happened and we're not sure where we are. In fact, let me show you how the verse, verse 1, reads in the original Hebrew. This is how it reads, if transliterated into English. It reads this way. And he called to Moshe, that's Moses' name in Hebrew, and he spoke Yahweh, that's God's name in Hebrew. Whenever you see the Lord in the Old Testament in all capital letters, that's just the Hebrew name for God, which is Yahweh, to him from the tent of meeting. 
So things are ordered a little differently in the Hebrew. Uh, oftentimes they'll put the verb up front and then the direct object and then the subject, which seems totally backwards to us, but they would say it's backwards for us to put the subject first. So they just do things a little differently in Hebrew. But the very first word is these three English words. It's translated into three English words, but it's only one Hebrew word, and he called, and it's the Hebrew word, Vaikra, Vaikra. All right, let's all say it together, all right? Vaikra. I didn't hear you. Vaikra. All right. The reason I wanted you to say that is because this is the name of the book that we're about to read in Hebrew. This is the name that they gave to the book. If you went to a Jewish synagogue today and a rabbi or a cantor stood up and said, we're going to read from the Torah this morning. I want you to open up your Torahs. We're going to read from the book of Vayikra. That's what he would say. Now, Leviticus is a Latin word, and it was given to the book hundreds of years later after it was written. And in Latin, it means for the Levites, Because hundreds of years later, there was a tribe of Levites, and they were the priests. We'll talk about them. And for them, this book was really, really important. But in Hebrew, the name has always just been Vaikra, the very first word of this book. And it's almost as if it serves as a reminder. We're starting in the middle of something. It starts with and. And. We're picking up the story somewhere. And if you're Jewish... And you were reading this as an ancient Jew and in Jesus' time, you would know that we're picking up the story in the middle of something because this is not the first time that Yahweh has called to Moshe. In fact, the first time that Yahweh has called to Moshe is partly where the story begins in the book of Exodus. Exodus starts by telling us that once upon a time there was a guy named Jacob Jacob had 12 sons. His 12 sons all had families. Jacob actually went by another name. The other name that he went by was the name Israel. Israel in Hebrew was a name that meant one who wrestled with God or one who struggled with God. Have you ever felt that way? I just struggle with God. That was Jacob, and he was called Israel. And so his 12 sons and their families were the 12 tribes of Israel. And we read that there was a famine in their land, and so he and his sons and their families all pick up and they move to the land of Egypt. And at that time, they're basically just one big extended family. And then Exodus tells us in the very beginning this, the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly. They increased in numbers, and they became so numerous that the land was filled with them. So these sons and their families, they have children, and then their children have lots of children, and then those lots of children have lots more children, and generation after generation goes by, and what was originally a very small ethnic group of one extended family becomes a really, really large group of people, so much that the story says this next. Then a new king, a new king to whom Joseph... Joseph was one of those original sons who had grown in influence in the land of Egypt, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. 
Come, we must deal shrewdly with them, or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, that was always a constant threat, and the Egyptians were focused on building up their military might. If war breaks out, they will join our enemies and fight against us and leave the country. Now, as I begin to tell this story, most of us already know it. Right? We know the, the general outline, or if you've been ch- around church at all, or you've seen any of the movies, we know the general contours of this story from Exodus. But the details are really important for where we're going. Because look at what the king of Egypt, who we know is called Pharaoh, look at what he orders the Egyptian leaders to do. Next verse. So they put slave masters over them, that was the Israelites, to oppress them with forced labor. And they built Pithom and Ramesses as store cities for Pharaoh. Archaeologists have uncovered the ruins of those cities. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with harsh labor and brick, and mortar, and with all kinds of work in the fields. In all their harsh labor, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. So we're told, and this is described in much greater detail in the paragraphs and the chapters to come, that the Egyptians oppressed the Hebrews. They worked them ruthlessly. That phrase shows up over and over. They enslaved them. They put them in bondage. They made their lives miserable. They made their lives bitter. And what kind of work did they do? Well, they did work out in the fields, gathering up crops. But it says they also built things with brick and mortar. They built store cities for Pharaoh. Let's just pause there and just, we skip over this detail oftentimes, but let's pause there and just think about that for a second. Why do you build store cities? Well, to store your riches, right? To hoard your excess, to, to increase your wealth, to increase your capacity for more wealth. Jesus told a story about this one time, a guy who just kept collecting more and more and building more and more barns so he could accumulate more and more. You build store cities to accumulate your capacity for hoarding and possessing more and more and more. And what we see is that Egyptian society is becoming ordered in a very specific way. There are the people on the top And there are the people on the bottom. And the people on the top are using their power to oppress the people on the bottom. The people on the top are increasing their wealth at the expense of the people on the bottom. The people on the top have even dehumanized the people on the bottom. They're treating them like mules or tools to do their work for them. And it's no surprise that the people on the top are from the majority ethnic group and the people on the bottom are from an immigrant ethnic group. What we begin to see as you read about this society is that it is a society with massive economic inequality and entrenched systematic injustice. And if you are on the bottom, and this has been going on not just for generations, but for hundreds of years, it raises all sorts of questions, right? Who decided who was on the top and who was on the bottom? 
Who ordered the world in this way? Is it possible that it could ever change? Is it possible that after hundreds of years of being ordered this way, we could have power and the people on the top could have none? Or will it always be this way? And where is God in all of this? Where where is the God of our forefathers, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Where is he in all of this? And Exodus tells us that the Israelites groaned in their slavery, and they cried out, and their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. It's like smoke ascending to God, and God heard their groaning. He heard their cries. He heard their complaints. When we cry out to him, when we complain, when we lament, when we say, this is not fair, this is not right, he heard all of that. He heard their groanings. And then Exodus tells us that the way God responded to all of that was vaikra. He called to a man named Moses. And this man named Moses, he said to Moses, and I'm just going to summarize because he says a whole bunch of thanks to Moses, but he says basically, I've heard your cries, I've heard your complaints, I've heard your laments, and I'm going to fight for you. I'm going to go to battle for you. I'm going to be on your side, and I am going to come down and rescue you from your slavery and from your bondage and lead you to freedom, right? And we know this part of the story because Moses then goes back to Pharaoh. And you remember all the things that happened. Moses says to Pharaoh, let my people go. And Pharaoh says, no, I'm never going to let your people go. And so Moses throws a plague at Pharaoh and on the Egyptians and on the Egyptian leaders and the systems of power in Egypt. And then the plagues get worse and worse and worse. And at every turn, the Pharaoh and the people in power say, no, we're never going to let you go. They just keep doubling down because people in power rarely give up their power very easily. In fact, finally, after the plagues get so terrible, after the 10th plague, the Pharaoh says, fine, you can leave. We don't want you anymore. And right when the people leave, he changes his mind and he sends his army after them because he decides, I'm not going to let them go that easily and we're just going to destroy them. We're never going to let them win. And so he sends his army after them and we're told that the Egyptian army is the one that gets sunk in the Red Sea and the people of Israel are free from the power structures of Egypt. (laughs) Now, if you were an ancient person reading this story, this is told in the first 15 chapters of Exodus, you would know this was not a battle between Moses and Pharaoh. This wasn't even a battle between Israel and Egypt. Any ancient person would have thought and known this was a battle between Yahweh and the gods of Egypt. And ultimately, more specifically, this was a battle and a fight and a a conflict between two ways of ordering the world, God's way of ordering the world and the Egyptian way of ordering the world. You see, the way of Egypt was about military might. It was about growing your power. It was about accumulating wealth. And it was about exploiting the people on the bottom in order to do that. 
And so if you're on the top, your, your worth and your dignity is wrapped up in how much power you have and how much wealth you own. And if you're on the bottom, your worth is only wrapped up in what you can produce and do for the people on the top. That's the way the world was ordered in Egypt. And if we're honest, that's the way our world is still ordered in many ways and in many places today. But then there's Yahweh, and Yahweh has a very different vision for the world. He has a different vision for humanity. He has a different ordering for society. He has an ordering where all people flourish, where all people have dignity, where all people have worth because they are connected to their creator who made them and loves them and gives them worth. God's ordering of the world is not about what you can accumulate or the power that you can achieve. In God's ordering of the world, there's no people on top and there's no people on bottom. There's just people who love and bless other people because their creator loves and blesses them. And do you see how this ordering of the world is so different from the Egyptian ordering? And so God rescues people from the Israelites from the Egyptian order and all of its inequity and all of its injustice and all of its years of despair. And he's basically going to show them a new ordering for the world. And so he leads them out of Egypt. We know the story. They go into the wilderness and then they come to this mountain in the middle of the wilderness. And this mountain becomes really important. It's called Mount Sinai. And God says, let's pause and stop right here because I have something to tell you. I'm going to tell you what we are about to do. In Exodus 19, it says this, then Moses went up to God. So he goes up to the mountain and the Lord called to him, Vaikra, From the mountain and said, Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. There's going to be something special about you. You're my treasured possession. And yes, I created and I loved and I oversee all nations and all people, but I have something special for you. You're going to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Now, those two phrases are really important. What do they mean? Um, Priest. Think about priest for a second. The word priest simply means someone that connects you to God. So someone that introduces you to God, someone who helps you know God and understand God and live with God. And so God says to the people of Israel, you're going to be a whole kingdom of priests. You're going to connect other people to me. You're going to introduce other people to me. You're going to show me and reflect me and embody me to other people. When other people want to see what I'm like and what my way of ordering the world is like, they're just going to look at you. In fact, there's almost this imagery of, if I could take on a body, God is saying, if I could take on a body, it would be you. I would come and be you so that when people look at you, they're going to see me. That's what kingdom of priests is all about, which also means you're going to have to be different. You're going to have to be different from the Egyptians. 
Because their way of ordering the world and the way that you've lived for hundreds of years in that ordering of the world, that's not my way of ordering the world. That way is destructive. That way leads to human diminishment, human despair, human dysfunction. So you're going to have to be different from the Egyptian way. You're also going to have to be different from the Canaanite way. The land that you move into, you're going to have neighbors living all around you who also live that way. And you're going to have to live a different way. That's what the word holy means. Holy was not a religious word. Holy in Hebrew just meant different, set apart, distinct, showing or offering a new way or a different way. So you're going to be a kingdom of priests. You're going to be a holy nation. Are you up for that? And it's almost as if at that point, the people of Israel are like, of course. Why would you just saved us from hundreds of years of slavery and despair? And now you want to show the whole world a brand new way of living and a brand new way of ordering. And you want to start with us and you want us to be the people to do. Of course, we'll do that. And that's when God says, okay, so here's what I'm going to do, and here's what you're going to do. And you start reading this in Exodus, and it almost sounds like a wedding ceremony. There's like vows that they're taking. Here's the things that I'm going to do for you, and here's what you're going to do for me. It's going to start with 10 simple things, so follow these 10 things, right? And we're going to be in this, and we're going to join together, and we're going to undertake this mission until death do us part, right? And it's like, this, it's like God and the people of Israel are getting married. And in fact, even after they say all of these things, there's this big celebration. They share this meal together. In Exodus 24, it says they eat a meal with God. It's like the wedding reception to celebrate the new relationship and the new life that they're entering into together. And then in Exodus 25, God says, here's what I want you to do next. I want you to build me a house because I'm going to move in and live with you. That's part of the deal. You get married and you move in and you live together and now we're going to live together and we're going to do this thing together. And so I want you to build me a house. And in Hebrew, the word used is tabernacle, and it sounds super religious to us, but tabernacle in Hebrew just meant living place or residence or dwelling place. You're going to build me a place where I can live with you in your midst. It's also called the tent of meeting. Because it's not a permanent structure. It's going to be a tent because we're going to be in the wilderness for a while. So you're going to have to set this thing up and take it down everywhere we go. But you're going to build this tent and I am going to take up residence and live with you. And this will be the place, the physical place you can come and meet with me. And then for 15 chapters... We get this long description of how this tent of meeting is supposed to be built and there's architectural plans and there's measurements and there's materials and you make this part out of linen and this part out of stone and use acacia wood here and gold here and silver here and put these furnishings here. And it's this long description and at the very end of all of that, it says Moses and the people build this tent according to all the specifications that God gives them and then it says God's glory comes and it fills up the tent and God moves in to live with them. And then, Vaikra, Vaikra, the Lord called to Moses and he spoke to him from the tent of meeting. 
And what God is going to say in the verses and the chapters to follow is, here's how we're going to reorder the world. And it's going to start with your lives. It's going to start with your families. It's going to start with your society and your culture. We're going to have to start by reordering your lives and your society. And that's how we're going to reorder the world. And that's where we pick up the book of Leviticus next week. Now, let me give you a few tips for how we're going to navigate our way through this book because I want us to read it together. So here's a few tips to help you as we navigate it together. Uh, Number one, first, use the study guide. Use the study guide. We've provided a study guide at newdenver.org slash Leviticus, and it contains a whole bunch of stuff. Um, First, it contains a reading schedule, um, so you can read along, and and I would love for everyone to do that, to to read through, and we're going to read the entire book of Leviticus. We're not skipping anything. So some weeks, there's going to be one chapter read. Some weeks, there's going to be a few chapters, but you'll read that week, and then you'll show up here on Sunday, or you'll watch on Sunday, and I'll talk through some of the things that we read together that week. Uh, The study guide also includes some discussion questions. If you want to discuss those in your family or with some friends, our small groups, our D groups are going to use those discussion questions when they gather to talk about Leviticus. Um, I've also on that page listed a whole bunch of resources. Uh, And that includes all the resources I've used uh, to prepare for this series. I have read so many books over the last couple of years, so many resources, and tried to see what so many scholars and thinkers have said about Leviticus. Um, I could name them all, John Golden Gay, Mary Douglas, Richard Hess, Rob Bell, Samuel Ballantyne, Mac, Michael Morales. I could just keep going, Gordon Winham, all of these different scholars, and it would be tedious for me 90% of the time when I share things in a sermon to say, well, that comes from this person, and this is an insight I gained from this person, and this is what this person thought. So I just listed all of the resources there on the page, and if you want to jump into one of those and go a little deeper, warning, some of them are academic, but if you want to use some of those resources, um, you're welcome to do that. So use the study guide that we put together. Um, Here's a second tip. Read a physical Bible and have it with you on Sundays. So a lot of us have gotten used to reading the Bible on our phones, and that's great. There's some great apps that help you, and it can be super easy and convenient, and there's some really neat tools on there. Um, But during this series, I want to encourage you to have an actual physical Bible. So we're going to read a whole bunch of verses. Um, Sometimes we're going to skip around those verses because we're going to try to read through some things really quick. And I was thinking about it. It's probably going to be tedious to put all the verses and to skip around really quickly on the screen. So I don't know how we'll do that. That might be a bit overwhelming. So I think the easiest thing is for you to actually just have a Bible with you where you can flip pages pretty easily. So uh, if you're showing up here on Sunday morning, you can go old school, find a big old Bible and bring it with you to church. If you're watching online, just have a Bible open and ready um, to dig into it. Um, We're going to read through the NIV translation. There might be times where we look at some other words, um, but we're going to read through the NIV because we think that's one of the best translations. So if you don't have an NIV translation, I encourage you to get one. It's just easier and then we'll all be on the same page. Um, If you don't have one of those or you don't have a Bible at all, we will give you one. We have a ton of Bibles. And so we'll set up a table in the back and we're going to pile a whole bunch of Bibles on there after the service. And you can just grab one of those Bibles on your way out and you can keep it um, so that you can read through that with us. Um, Here's a third tip. Third tip is 
Listen again on Wednesdays. So, uh, there's so much to cover in this series, uh, partly because there's just so much in the book of Leviticus and we're reading through all of it, but partly because it raises so many questions and there's all these rabbit trails that you're going to discover that, that, that lead all in different directions. And on Sundays, we're going to be able to take some of those rabbit trails and dig a little deeper. But there's going to be a bunch of rabbit trails where I'm just going to say, I have no clue what that means. Figure it out yourself. Or we just don't have time to talk about that. So, um, so here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to record a second message. It's not going to be a sermon. It's going to be me sitting at home talking into a microphone from my desk at home where I just offer a few thoughts on some stuff that we couldn't talk about on Sundays. Because there were so much, and there's some things that I'm going to have to leave out, and so I'll record a second podcast, and we'll post that. So for instance, this week, um, this week, there's this amazing thing that's going on beneath the surface, and it happens at the end of Exodus, and it's actually picked up on at the very beginning of the book of Leviticus, and it shapes everything that we read from here on out, and it goes back to Exodus, and it even goes back farther to that, to some things that are at the very core of all of human existence, but it was such a big idea that I didn't have time to talk about it this morning, so I'm just going to talk about it this week, and that'll be part of the podcast, so we'll upload those on Wednesdays, so listen again, um, and you can subscribe and get those um, and listen each week. So, fourth tip. Fourth tip, uh, when you read Leviticus, let Leviticus read you. So this series is just as much about you and your life as it is about this book. It would be easy for us to take this book and analyze it and study it and treat it like a, a specimen to be studied or almost treat it like a puzzle to be figured out. And once we figure it out, we've done it, we put it back in the box, and we put it on the shelf. And if you've been around church for very long, or if you've been a part of small groups or Bible studies, you know that sometimes we do that with the Bible. We treat it as something to be studied. And of course, we're going to study this over the next several weeks. And of course, we're going to try to address some of the many questions that it raises, and I hope you get some answers to those questions. But let's not forget that the words in the book of Leviticus are living and they're active. They're full of life, they're full of conviction, they're full of mystery, they're full of imagination, and they can penetrate our hearts, and they can penetrate our souls, and they can penetrate our lives, and they can penetrate our families, and they can penetrate our minds, and they can penetrate our attitudes, and they can penetrate our world if we let them. And so let's be open as we read this book to letting it read us and begin to form us and shape us in a new way. And here's the last tip. Last tip, then we'll close. When you read, don't ask, why did God do it this way? <laughs> Instead, ask, why was this included? You see, I don't think you can answer the first question until you've asked and answered the second question. Which is going to be really hard because you're going to read through and you're going to come to some things and it's going to be this way for the next 13 weeks. It's going to be this way this week. You're going to read some things and they're not going to make any sense to you initially. In fact, you're going to read some things that sound appalling at first. 
You're going to be appalled by some of the things you read. And the first question you're going to ask and you're going to get stuck on is, why in the world would God do this? Why would God ask people to live this way? Why would God command this? And it's so easy to get hung up there. But what I've discovered and what so many other people have discovered is when you come across one of those weird verses or weird passages or weird stories is to start with the second question. Why was this included? Why was this included by the people who originally wrote it or the people who originally read it or the people who originally lived by it? What does this tell us about those people and their stories and their world? Because when we begin to explore the answers to those questions, it almost always helps us to better wrestle with our own questions about who God is and what he's up to in our world and what the reordering of our own world just might look like. You see, I think God wants to say some things to each one of us. I think God has a lot to say about what our world looks like and how it might be reordered, what our lives look like and how they might be reordered. And it's just possible he might use this really strange book in order to do that. So let me pray for us as we begin this journey together. God, we do pray that um, you would use this uh, study, this time, these next 13 weeks um, in our lives um, as we reflect on these ancient words that were written down hundreds and hundreds of years ago, words that formed such a huge part of one people's life. And so God, I pray that somehow they would form a part of our lives. I pray that you would help us when there's so many cultural references and things that seem odd and strange and different to us. Pray that you would help us to not get overwhelmed by the details, sometimes by the repetition And God, I just pray for each and every person in our community of faith, wherever we are on our journey with you. I pray for those that have been following you for so many decades. I pray for those who are maybe new to following you. I pray for those who have big doubts right now about what it means to follow you. God, I pray for those who are asking the tough questions who are not even sure they want to follow you anymore, who have been hurt by life, by people, and they're just not sure what to do with all that. God, I pray that as a community of faith right now and in the coming weeks, we would seek you out, we would draw close to you, and you would draw close to us. pray all of this in your name. Amen.